In October 1967, 26-year-old Mary Sevier set off from Sussex in England to ride to India on a motorcycle. The bike she had chosen for her trip was a 1966 BSA Bantam with a single-cylinder 175cc two-stroke engine. She reached India and kept going all the way around the world. The journey would take her nine years, making her the first British woman to circumnavigate the world alone on a motorcycle. My name is Martin Moore, and I'm a journalist and filmmaker. In November 2021, I sat down with Mary and asked her to tell her story. Episode 7, Peace in New Zealand and the Threat of War in Southeast Asia. When we arrived in Wellington Harbour in New Zealand, my brother, who was part of the uh, harbour board and a pilot, I knew he would be coming out to the ship with the pilot on duty because he'd done that with my mother when she arrived on a cargo ship. And so I was called, um, and it was about breakfast time, I was called, would Mary Sevier please go back to her cabin? So I thought, oh, Richard's arrived, because I knew the pilot had come on board. So I went back to my cabin, and there was my brother sitting there, and he hadn't seen me since I was 15 years old, and a, what he thought, I think, probably was a rather snotty school schoolgirl. <laughs> and I think they thought that I was very spoiled, because I... I think it seemed to be a known fact that I possibly was the most favourite of my mother, but that's incidental. And he just looked at me and he looked around the cabin and he said, do you normally travel like this? How can you afford it? And I said, of course I don't. No, of course not. I said, no, 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 I, I, was, I was upgraded. And he, I said, um, uh, when, when we, and then I, I welcomed him, and I said, when we get to, into the port, um, where, will, um, where will I meet Barbara, his wife, because I hadn't met her, uh, and the children. And he said, um, what are you doing in this cabin? He said, I can't get over it. And I said, well, I wrote a, a two-page spread in a news, Sunday newspaper in Sydney, and the shipping company obviously saw this, and I mentioned that I was sailing on this particular ship to go to New Zealand. And I said, I guess if they've got a cabin spare. And I gave them the publicity, but what it counts for, I really don't know. Uh, but I said, no, I got upgraded. I said, I didn't know anything about it until I arrived in, uh, down at the port. And they took my motorbike, and my motorbike's sitting in a room somewhere. Um, and I think the managing director was down there who was um, seeing, seeing me out of Australia, which was really, really nice. I, I can't get over it. But I said, that's the sort of thing that has happened to me uh, on many occasions when I have been around the world on, on, on this tour. Um, and he said, um, he said, I don't know how you're going to take this, but uh, when you arrive on the quay, uh, there are some newspaper people there. They want to interview you. Uh, and TV cameras. I said, oh, yeah, well, when, when am I going to meet Barbara? Is she going to be there as well? And he said, did you hear what I said? And he said, and then when we get back, he said, um, they want you on television programs and they want you on the radio. So I said, oh. And he said, well, aren't you surprised? So I said, well, yes, I suppose I am. But he said, have you had that sort of thing happen to you before? So I said, um, Yes, quite a few times, actually. 
I said, all around, all around Australia. I said, I was on television, on, on radio, and, and in the newspapers, uh, because they seemed to think that it was something unusual for a young English woman to go around Australia on a motorcycle on her own. Um, so I said, well, yes, I'm used to it. <laughs> it's ter terrible. Um, do you mind if I turn this on now? Because it's getting a little bit dark outside. Oh, it's really rather lovely. Um, so, no, I, I got to New Zealand um, and I met all the family and my brother had four children by then. Uh, and uh, I travelled around... Where did I go first? I think I did went down to South Island and actually it was becoming winter. So it wasn't really very nice. Um, and because I wanted to see the country and meet people. I don't know how it started. I probably got hold of, it was something like, it was equivalent to, in England, sort of the Women's Institute, I suppose. But this was the Farmer's Wives Guild, I think. Um, and so I got jobs through them. <laughs> I got paid $20 New Zealand dollars a week, which when you think about it, that's probably what they get per hour nowadays. But after all, it was rather a long time ago. But I didn't mind because I was getting board and lodging. Every household I went to was provided me with a car. Uh, generally, the parents weren't there. Generally, the parents had gone on holiday. Uh, so I had children. And there was always one child who don't, didn't go to school. So it was 24 hours a day. And it, it was a bit difficult. But... These poor children, I felt sorry for them because when they came back from school, I would say, right, we're going on a picnic. And this was in the winter. And it shook them a little bit, but then they realized that this was something different. And so we would, I would have the picnic all ready and they would go and change out of their school clothes and they'd get into their romping around clothes and off we would go. And I saw a lot of South Island this way because I chose my jobs in different areas. Um, I met the neighbors, I met the relations. Uh, it, it was excellent. And in fact, on Facebook on two or three days after Christmas, somebody from New Zealand in Facebook got in touch with me and said, were you ever in New Zealand on a motorcycle? So I didn't recognize him. He looked about 40 years old or so, and I didn't recognize the name. Uh, I should have done. And he, I sent back, uh, you must know, you must have some connection with me to have asked me that question. Yes, I was in New Zealand for about nine months on a BSA Bantam uh, on a world trip uh, and I'm now back in England and he said you came and looked after me and my three brothers and it was really sad because he and his mother well the whole family had been looking for me trying to find me for years but I hadn't been on Facebook I was on Facebook, I think, about five or six years ago. But they weren't spelling my name correctly, so I don't know how they did come up with it, uh, unless it came out through Mary Motorcycle. But Bert, the father died, I think, on Boxing Day. But when he was about 
to depart this world. He had all the family around him and he said, we never ever did find Mary Motorcycle, did we? It would have been so nice to have found out what had happened to her because they didn't know that I had finished. And the, the eldest son who got in touch with me was very, they were all very, very upset that they found me that quickly. But I'm now in touch with their mother, who's the same age as I am. And I hope to get out to New Zealand to see her because she actually knew of all the jobs that I went to. So if there's anything I've forgotten, she will know them, which is good. So I went all over New Zealand, right down to the very south, to the big signpost that's there at Bluff, pointing in all directions around the world. And then I went right the way up to the north, to Cape Ringer, where there is a, a lighthouse. Um, and then uh, I was telling everybody that from New Zealand I was going to go to America. But after a few months of saying this, I got fed up with saying I was going to America. And I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. I've got enough money. I'll go to Southeast Asia. Uh, it's different. And after all, I've come this far, so I might just as well do Southeast Asia. So I found this, <coughs> excuse me, the same ship, Greek shipping company was going from Wellington to Singapore. So I booked a passage and again, um, I don't think, I got upgraded, but I think I got a single cabin, but that's not what I paid for. And of course, again, I didn't pay for the motorbike. I'd, I'd been, I'd learned, and it really was good of the captain on the first ship to tell me <laughs> that I shouldn't pay for my motorbike. But as I said earlier, um, there are so few container ships now that carry passengers um, and I don't know what would happen if one traveled on a cruise ship uh, and wanted to take a motorbike and nowadays I believe people because you can get cheap flights a crate a freight for motorbikes um, I won't say the name of the country but there is one particular country that is known for uh, flying bikes quite cheaply and I think that's how everybody seems to do it. And then they will fly themselves. Um, but of course, I, I just love being on the ships anyway. It was such fun. Uh, so I went over to Singapore and I went right up the east coast of Malaysia. I came down the center and I got on the train which went through the jungle. And in those days, it was very much uh, an old rickety steam train. And I sat in a wagon with my motorcycle and my legs dangling off the side. And um, supposedly there were still uh, militants up in the hills there in the jungle. Um, and uh, there was quite a presence still of, I think, the, the British Army there. Uh, then I got to Penang and my mother's first husband's sister and her husband lived in Penang in an old Penang house. Absolutely beautiful, on the top of a hill, immaculate parkland all around. They'd been there, well, certainly since the war, and he had actually been imprisoned by the Japanese. He was on the Burma Railway. And I guess he survived because he had been living in Malaysia, or Malaya as it was anyway. So he was used to the heat and the mosquitoes and everything. Uh, and he used to take me out to the rubber plantation and the coffee plantation that uh, he owned, which he had inherited, I think, from some, some woman he'd worked for. Uh, and he used to tell me all these different stories. And 
I didn't know what dementia was, but he had it. And so I would hear these stories so many times and I had to be so patient because I realized that he was elderly um, and I was their guest. Uh, but they, had, they, they really did have the most fantastic property. Um, she was very devout Catholic. Well, they both were, I think, very devout Catholic. And they had villages set up. So they would have a village for Indians. They would have a village for, well, probably Catholics, a village for Muslims, a village for Buddhists, and they would educate them. There, there would be schooling. There would be, they would look after them. And when there was a public holiday, say Christmas, so that's Christian, but they would then have the Buddhists or the Muslims being servants. I mean, the place was overrun with, with staff. Um, and I can remember the day I arrived, uh, I was told to sit outside. I hadn't taken, I'd taken my motorcycle gear off and I'd parked the bike, etc. And I think I'd unpacked, but Mary said it was time for afternoon tea and everything was done you know, to, 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 to like, very regimental. She had been a nurse, a matron, I think. Um, and I was sitting on a chair outside, looking down the sweeping lawn. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw something moving. And I looked and I thought, oh my God, there's a snake. And it was a huge snake. So I thought, stiff up a British lip, Mary. It's only a snake. After all, the country's full of snakes. Don't worry about it. So as it came along, I raised my legs and the snake went under my legs and Mary came out of the house and she shrieked her head off and said, there's a snake, there's a snake. <laughs> I thought, oh, for God's sakes, it's only a snake. I mean, the country's full of Anyway, it turned out it was a highly poisonous snake. So she screamed for beaters. And of course, the beater came along and got a sack and God knows what else and cart carted the jolly thing off. And she said, didn't you see it? So I said, well, yes, I Well, why didn't you say something? So I said, well, I'd only just arrived. I could hardly shriek, there's a snake, because she'd probably say, what a stupid woman she is. <laughs> I, I, it really was very, very funny. Anyway, eventually I left them, but oh, on Sundays we used to go to the yacht club. <gasps> I used to die, absolutely die. I could not convince myself that the staff didn't worry about it. Hugh would snap his fingers, he'd clap his hands, boy, boy. And it took, it really, I had to think really hard that he has been doing this for years and years and years. And the staff here in the Yacht Club have been here for years and years and years. So they know he is part of the old colonials. And on Saturday afternoons, they used to have tea and tennis. And I was sitting watching the tennis one day and a woman came and sat next door to me. And she said, oh, it's all so sweet the way the what was their name? Oh, I can't remember what they're not in Hugh, Hugh, the way Hugh and Mary hold these tea, tea and, 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 and tennis parties. It's very sweet of them because it's all so old colonial, isn't it? So I said, yes, it is very nice. And she said, um, and what are you doing here in Penang? And so I said, I happen to be staying with Hugh and Mary. said they're relations of mine which actually was a lie because they weren't <laughs> they were relations of my mother's <laughs> um, and I think Alan Wicker had a program a long time ago on television about I think it was colonials I don't think it was expats I think it was the life of colonials and he had gone round the world looking for people who still lived the old colonial life and he found Mary and Hugh 
And oh, it was absolutely fantastic. It really was watching it. It, it really was an absolute joy because it was after I had been to stay with them. Anyway, I left Malaysia. I went up through Thailand, uh, Patia, well, some, some of the, some of the Phuket. Quite a lot of people went to Phuket, um, but, but more travelers as opposed to tourists. Uh, Patia, I think, had a couple of smart hotels. Now it's wall-to-wall -wall smart hotels. Uh, and of course, a lot of beach resorts have now been found in, in, in Thailand. Um, very, very touristy. And then I went up to Chiang Mai. Uh, then I went eastwards. And I didn't really, I didn't really know where, exactly where I was going. I think I was trying to do a circle route. And somebody came screaming. I was going along a road past paddy fields and somebody on a motorbike came screaming down the road and said, stop, stop, stop. And I said, what's the matter? Don't go any further because you are getting to the Vietnamese border. And they will shoot you because they will think that you're, um, uh, that you're army um, and, and your enemy. So I said, oh, thank you very much indeed. With the Union Jack all over the place on my motorbike, but never mind. And then I decided I wanted to go up to Laos. So I went up to the Mekong and got a little ferry across to the other side. Uh, stayed in Vientiane for a few days. Um, it was very, very interesting, uh, very run down. And I was offered a job helping a man run his office. And I think he was import-export. But at that stage, I had a feeling that probably the country was going to be taken over by the communists. And I thought, much as I would have liked to have stayed, because I did speak French, and they were very French-speaking there, because the French had been in there. Um, I thought, mm, don't know. A uh, bit difficult getting back across the Mekong if suddenly everybody arrives. Um, I can't swim, and the motorbike can't, and I, I could be stuck on the wrong side of the river. So I decided, no, I was going to leave in the end. Um, and it was the only time I paid somebody. There were three fat men in uniform, and I don't know whether they were immigration or what, but obviously they were officers of some form. And they said I had to pay a certain amount of money to go across the Mekong. And I said, I've got my ferry ticket. No, you've got to pay. You've got to pay an exit, exit visa. And I said, I don't think I do. And I realized that there was no way I was going to be allowed out. We, I, I can't remember whether they had my passport. I don't think so. But there was no way the three fat men, <laughs> Tweedledums, were going to let me, let me out without paying. So I had to cough up the body. And I was not amused because it was, I think it was the only time I ever coughed up money. It was a matter of principle. <laughs> and then I went back over the Mekong and down to Thailand, down to Bangkok. And then I was booked on a cargo ship, Polish cargo ship, going to Hong Kong. And again, I didn't pay for it. And it went into a room, so it wasn't crated. And eventually I arrived in Hong Kong. And I went to stay in the YWCA up the hill on Hong Kong Island. And uh, I think we must have docked in the morning. So I think in the afternoon, I rang up the two firms of English lawyers that were there at the time and said, I've been trained as a legal secretary. Uh, I was a court shorthand writer in the magistrate's court. 
do you need any uh, assistance? And one of them said no, and the other one said, where are you staying? So I said, in the YWCA, up the hill. And they said, right, call you back. But there are two girls, Australian girls, sisters, who are staying in, in, in the same uh, YW. Um, and one of them works in our office. So uh, you could always talk to them when they come back from work. So that evening, I got a phone call saying, yes, can you start tomorrow? And I said, no, I can't. I said, no, no. And I thought, well, I'm not telling them I've got a motorbike. I've got to pick up for the port. I just said, no, I can't. And I haven't got any clothes. Oh, you don't have to wear black clothes. This isn't England. This is Hong Kong. You can come down in a skirt and a top. And they said, well, yes, but I've only just arrived. So no, 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 you have to give me a couple of days or so. So literally within about three days, I had got a job in Hong Kong on the strength of having saying that I was a court shorthand writer. And I had really gone to Hong Kong with the intention of working because I knew that it was a country at that time where I would be allowed to work without any problems. I did have to get permission. Um, I didn't think I had to get a residence permit. Um, I did have to, I think I had to get, a, get permission for the first job, but after that I don't think um, I had to require, there was no sort of a, a, a official regulations for working. Um, and then, um, Somewhere along the line, I moved to a very large Far Eastern company because the secretary had gone on holiday. I think she was staying in the YWCA, so I got her job while she went on holiday. Um, and then I was there for three years, uh, and I said I was going to stay three years, and then I would probably go. Actually, what I really wanted to do was try and somehow get up to Alaska uh, and then come down the Pan Am Highway from Alaska right the way down through America. I don't think it's called the Pan Am highway anymore but it was from Alaska right the way down the west coast of America through to Central America and then get off as one has to and then get down into South America and carry on right down to the south but that didn't eventuate. Um, I moved from job to job in Hong Kong if I found that I was being exploited and I was simply because I wasn't just a secretary I was used to administrative work. Um, one of my bosses was fired. Uh, I'd never seen anybody actually escorted to their desk and told to empty it <laughs> and move. He was an Australian and his wife was a friend of mine. Uh, no, he'd, he'd, he'd done the dirty on the company. Um, and he went and they were hiring for the underground system, mass transit. And um, Managing director took it for granted that because I knew what I was doing, I would continue his job. So I went and asked for a salary rise. You're a very well-paid secretary. No, why should you be paid more? So I said, yes, but I'm not a secretary anymore. I'm now doing Mr. Barton's work. Well, you're not really. I said, I am, because I know exactly what he was doing. I've got the list of all the people who applied for jobs, all the engineers, all technical staff, etc. So I said, well, okay, fine. So I went back, sat at my desk, and I did nothing. I was waiting for somebody to tell me what to do because I was only a secretary. Um, and eventually, the managing director realized that <laughs> this was not going very well. So he called me in, and he said, um, you're not doing anything. So I said, well, I'm waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. 
well, you know what to do. You know what Mr. Barton was doing. I said, look, we've had this argument before. You pay me half of what he was paid and I'll do it. But I said, otherwise, no. And he said, no, we're not paying you anymore. So I said, that's okay. It's very dour Scott. Came from a place called Dollar. Do Dollar, can't do a Scottish accent. He was taller than me too. Um, you, usually I'm, I'm at an advantage because I look down on people, but <laughs> and I had to look up to him. Uh, anyway, I decided I'd had enough, so I wrote out my notice and handed it in. And he called me and said, what's all this about? You're leaving? What are you going to do? So I said, I don't know. Have you got another job to go to? So I said, no. You mean to say that you're handing in your notice and you're self-supporting and you haven't got another job to go to? So I said, I won't have any trouble getting a job. What do you mean by that? So I said, I have a very good reputation here in Hong Kong. At that time, there were very few bilingual Chinese secretaries and European companies employed, I hate to say this, European secretaries because the managing directors or the presidents or the chairman or whatever they were, were allowed to. Um, so I said, I won't have any trouble. I know all the, all the women who run the, uh, the, the secretarial agencies. Well, I'll get a job as fast as I move out of here. Um, yeah, he was not amused at all. I think he'd called me all sorts of things. I never met such an assertive young woman. So I said, well, it looks as though I have to fight my corner, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, dear me. So I moved from job to job, and then eventually I met the person who uh, we decided we were going to get married. And David said, I really think that you should ship your bike to America, go over, ride across the states to the other side, so that in your old age you can sit in your rocking chair and say you went round the world on a motorbike. So I said, I didn't set off to go round the world. I am not a motorcyclist. I'm not the slightest bit interested in going anywhere on the motorbike. No, I'm not going to do it. I would like you to do it because I would feel very badly that maybe you might regret not finishing it. The Merry Motorcycle Podcast is the unedited audio track from a film about Mary Sevier made by Martin Moore and produced by Saul Jevons. Listen to episode 8 now.